Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. We continue a, a series uh, on our identity in Christ and living into that spirit, soul, and body. The basis of the series is the text, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. This morning is the second in our consideration of spirit. And then next week, some theology of the soul, and a second week on soul, and then two more weeks subsequently on uh, body, but this morning kind of an illustration of spiritual identity by looking at the life of uh, Jacob. So please join me in prayer, and then we'll consider this together. Father, we want to thank you for the day. I, I want to thank you speci- specifically today, Father, that as we celebrate this weekend, the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, that uh, you have called us to be people of hope and reconciliation, people of justice and mercy. Uh, and we are quick to confess, Father, that Uh, Though we know you, we've fallen short in many of these areas. Uh, Our prayer this morning is that your spirit would teach us and that you'd shape us, Father, to be people who live out from the core, uh, the true identity that you've given us, and that out from there uh, we might display to our world the justice and mercy and hope and joy of Christ. Toward toward that end, we pray with thanksgiving. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I read an article this week in the New York Times entitled, Who Killed the Knapp Family? Nicholas Kristof, the author, uh, muses on the rise in what he calls deaths of despair. And you may or may not be aware of it, but uh, the, the life expectancy of an average American has now been on the decline now for three years in a row. So we reach an apex in longevity, and now we're beginning to decline. And it has to do with... Uh, suicides being at their highest rate since World War II, one child in seven living with a parent suffering from substance abuse, and a baby born every 15 minutes whose mother is addicted to opioids. Uh, we are in a chasm as a culture. May not, you may think it doesn't affect you, but it does affect you. But these deaths of despair, the author goes on to articulate, uh, the, the solution he offers are kind of political, structural, economic solutions. I'm not here to debate those. But we as God's people are called to kind of fly above all of that and ask the question, okay, if there are deaths of despair going on in a, in a, in a culture, what does God have to say about that? And one of the most fundamental things that I hope we can all see is this. When I read the article through a theological lens, what I see missing rampantly missing in our American culture of today, including evangelical culture, is people having a core identity rooted and established in Christ. Uh, When I read that article, I see what we need. Every person needs a strong sense of self, a strong identity, a confidence, and that confidence and that strong identity is mission critical to, to living a life of meaning. In other words, every person needs to know We need to know we're loved. We need to know that we have a purpose. We need to know that someone in the universe is for us unconditionally, irrevocably, even when we fail. In other words, we need a core identity and a good news of the gospel. At its very foundational level, the good news is this. God is saying, I've given you a new identity in Christ. You have it. Now, it's it's false to you to receive it. And so this idea... I have a new identity in Christ is not incidental, not trivial, it's foundational. And so often I, I hear people say, yeah, 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 well, whatever, Christ lives in me, but how do I live the Christian life? Oh, yeah, 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 I get it, I have a new identity. Let's move on. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm complete in Christ. Whatever. How do I live? And we, want, we go on, we want to argue about ethics or practices or politics. Stop. <laughs> this morning at least for 31 minutes. Now 30 and 57 seconds. <laughs> Just stop and let's think about what God has given you. Here's this thing, this new identity, and here's God. <sighs> Do you love that? <sighs> that sound? God's given it to you. Do you believe it? Have you received it? Is it informing how you live your life? Those are the fundamental questions of this whole series. But it all starts with me believing that I'm complete in Christ. It all starts there. So what we're going to do this morning is look at a narrative, the story of Jacob, to remind us that our new identity is not because of something we've done to earn it. You didn't buy it. You didn't perform your way in. Your, your new identity is in spite of who you are, not because of who you are, right? So like turn to your neighbor and say that. Your new identity is in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. Just say it right now. Your new identity is in spite of who you are. Okay, good enough, good enough, that's fine. Now, here's the thing. If that sounds like demeaning and derogatory, it's because you don't yet understand the gospel fully. And so I hope that we'll get there this morning. And we begin with this. There's three realities. The first reality is this. Uh, often in life, our outward behavior will contradict our truest identity. It's just the way it is. So when we look at the life of Jacob, we realize that this gift that Jacob was given, this new identity, was given to him, it was given him even before he was born. In uh, Genesis 25, verse 23, we pick up this genealogical story. God's chosen family. Chosen for what? Chosen to represent the character of God on this planet. So that people would know in a world of injustice and suffering and, and you know, racism and misogyny and abuse and greed that there's a different path. It would be evident in, in the people of God began with Abraham, and then Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and then Isaac marries Rebekah, and, and Rebekah uh, becomes pregnant, and then she doesn't have a child kicking in her womb. She has two sons in her womb kicking each other. So there's a battle going on in her womb, uh, and she's wondering what's up, and so she prays and asks God, why is there excessive kicking going on in my womb? And God says, oh, that's because there's two nations in your womb. They're fighting. Just the way they will in real life. And then it says here, uh, the older, this is like, I'm going to use this word, but don't get hung up on this word this morning. This is predestined for Jacob. The older will serve the younger. Unheard of in all of Mesopotamian culture. The younger always serves the older. And now God says, look, throw everything out. It's going to be a new path. And in this new path, it, I've already told you, the older is going to serve the younger. Jacob is the recipient of a unique blessing. Now, let's kind of unpack this here. Because Jacob has been given an identity by God. It's his. He is going to be the, like the patriarch 
of the family that becomes the nation becomes Israel. It's, that's his destiny. We love stories about destiny, right? This is why we love, well, some of you love Star Wars. If you love Star Wars, um, part of the reason you love Star Wars, probably, is because of this notion that there's this force that is bestowed upon you somehow, and then you spend your life discovering it, debating whether you even wanted it or not, and then learning to live into it, right? And that's, uh, is it Harrison Ford? No, it's the other guy. Uh, It's Luke, it's Mark Hamill. He has the force, and then... And then he goes and lives in a cave somewhere because he misused the force and he's dealing with shame issues. And, and then uh, he mentors uh, the woman who has the force, Ray. And she doesn't know she has the force, but then she discovers she has the force and isn't sure she wants the force. Uh, just like Frodo isn't sure that he wants the ring, but he has the ring. Destiny, right? Just, just like, just like uh, Moses... When God says to Moses in, uh, in the desert in uh, Exodus chapter 3, look, uh, my people are enslaved, and I'm giving you an identity. You're going to lead these people out. You're going you're to lead them out. I don't want that. I don't care, says God. This is, this is your identity. And if, like, if you've ever seen that movie, Prince of Egypt, man alive, if you happen to see that movie and you happen to be a pastor who is ambivalent about his calling, and you see in Exodus 3... In the movie, uh, uh, Moses seeing the burning bush, receiving his calling, wrestling with God, I started to cry when I heard the song. I don't even remember the words of the tune, but I remember going, yeah, that's exactly me. Called, not wanting to go. So here's the thing. I'm telling you this morning, you have a new identity. You may not want it. You have it anyway. You may not believe it. You have it anyway. You may not live as if you're a new person. You still have a new identity. That's the way it is. That's the way it was for Jacob, right? Is this annoying to you that God dishes out new identity regardless of people's performance? Because if you know the story, you know that Jacob goes on to become, the word I used to describe him is a weasel. He, like he is not a good person, right? Has this new identity, loved by God, called by God, chosen by God, and then uh, he spends his young adult life stealing stuff from his brother, uh, deceiving his dad. He's manipulative. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a thief. His entire life is fear-based. He's filled with anxiety. And he's called, blessed, loved, and chosen. In spite of the fact that he has no emotional IQ and he has the ethical maturity of a politician, In spite of that, he has this identity. This identity is unconditional. And Jacob is a perfect illustration of that. Perfect illustration. I teach Genesis for torchbearers. I'm going to teach in a couple weeks over in Europe. And every time I teach through and paint a picture of Jacob and Esau, I paint a picture of Jacob as this skinny guy who shaves once a week and is, is not a... Not, not typically masculine, right? And, and, then, and then Esau, his twin brother, not an identical twin, he's totally opposite. He, like he shaves twice a day, he drives a Hummer, he's got a gun rack, chewing tobacco, watches WWF stuff on TV, right? And, and, 
And so th- here they are. And, but Jacob is not only, you know, cross-country and flute playing and soup making, but he's, he's a liar and a cheater. So I always ask, everywhere I go, okay, who would you rather have a beer with, Jacob or Esau? And it is universal. Everybody wants to have a beer with Esau. Nobody likes Jacob. And yet Jacob, hear me, Jacob's chosen. Now why, what is God trying to teach us here? Something very important, actually. God's trying to teach us that the starting point of our transformation is not our ethical behavior. God never says, hey, here's a checklist of things. I want you to stop smoking. I want you to stop drinking. I want you to stop sleeping around. I want you to kind of grow up ethically, clean up your life, put a tie on, shave, uh, get a job, and then you can come and be a part of my story. Never, never, ever, ever. The starting point of your transformation is this. God loves you with an infinite, everlasting love. God is irrevocably for you. And God has gifted you nothing less than the resurrected Jesus to live inside you, who, when that Jesus joined with your human spirit, begins to run the show, will lead you down a path beyond what you could ask, hope, or even imagine. That's the Christian life. So uh, we see over and over again in the scriptures that God wants to give us something and what God gives us is not in any way tied to our performance. And so when you come to the New Testament, this is articulated, as we saw last week, in these unconditional gifts that God has given us. Ephesians chapter 1, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Uh, uh, you're, 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 you're chosen by God, Ephesians chapter 1. You're adopted into God's family, Ephesians chapter 1. You've been given all things pertaining to uh, life and godliness, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Christ lives in you, Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Gift, gift, gift. Throw it all in a blender. What is this gift? This is your new identity in Christ. And there is not a single person in Christ encounters who received the gift because they performed well. You just don't see that. Who received the gift? Oh, you know, tax collectors, Roman soldiers, people living outside the sexual mainstream, rich, poor, Jews, Gentiles, liberals, conservatives, zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman government, and Roman politicians. So the precondition for receiving a new identity and living into it, there are none. (laughs) You just need to receive it. And then that new identity begins to transform you. But the transformation begins not with you changing your behavior. The transformation begins with you receiving. If behavior change is a precondition for us receiving, we have religion, and it becomes legalistic, it becomes ugly. And so Jacob's nature is really instructional here. Because watch this. Jacob is given this new identity. He's the heir of Abraham's covenant and blessing. Though he's given this new identity, he spends his entire young adult life trying to secure by his own wits what God has already given him. Is that amazing? In other words, if I can illustrate it, there's tea in the cup. It's licorice tea. 
because it helps you speak better. So there's tea in the cup, but how weird would it be if with a full cup, I went to the barista and said, I'd like a, an Americana, please. Uh, oh, she says, yes, but your cup is full. Well, uh, no, not really. Uh, like, it, it can't be full because I haven't bought anything. Yeah, but someone has given you. It's, it's there already. It's yours. Americana, please. We say it louder. We pull out our wallet. Look, I can, I can buy this. No, you can't. Ever. In fact, not only can you not buy it, you don't need it. You already have it. That's the starting point of the gospel, right? And one of the clear revelations in this particular text is we see in Jacob's nature a, a desire to earn what God wants to give. In other words, Jacob is anti-grace, so are we. How do I know that? Well, because... If someone gives me a gift, it's instinctive in me. I want to repay. Is that true of anybody else in the room? Have you ever had the annoying experience at Christmas of receiving a gift from someone and you didn't buy them a gift? And your first instinct isn't to say, oh, thank you, I'm honored. Your first in instinct is to say, man, what a bummer. Now I have to go buy them a gift, <laughs> right? And I don't want to buy them a gift. But they gave me a gift and we feel obligated because we live in this kind of consumeristic, commodified world where we hear it. There's no free lunch. So I wonder how much energy we seek, or excuse me, how much energy we spend trying to earn an identity in spite of the remarkable identity that God has already given you. Your cup's already full, but you don't believe it, so you're out trying to buy more stuff for your cup. So the, the first thing I want you to see then is like the significant observation, right? Behavior sometimes contradicts reality. The second thing, equally important, though you are behaving in a way dissonant to your truest identity, your behavior doesn't negate your identity. In other words, when you're behaving badly, nothing changes about your essential identity. So we see this in the story because Jacob... Uh, stole a blessing from Esau, and then uh, uh, he stole a birthright from Esau. And to do these things, he ended up selling, uh, uh, Esau sold the, the entire promised land to Jacob for a bowl of soup, which wasn't illegal but would be immoral. And then, and then uh, Jacob dressed up like his brother, and went to his blind father and said, I'm Esau, bless me, and took Esau's blessing. And then Esau got bummed about losing the entire promised land and the blessing and approval of his father. So Esau, being the guy with the Hummer, says, I know, as soon as dad dies, and he was about to die, as soon as dad died, I'll, I'll kill Jacob and then I'll get back the promised land and the, and, and the blessing. No problem. And Esau's not worried about killing Jacob because he's Esau, right? And Jacob, <laughs> you know, he's Jacob. So, Rebecca, who, uh, in, I mean, this is the most dysfunctional family. Like, Rebecca unabashedly favors Jacob and, and uh, Isaac unabashedly favors Esau. So then Rebecca goes to Jacob and says, hey, you got to get out of town for a few days because your brother is comforting himself 
after you ripped off everything, by planning to kill you. So why don't you just leave for a few days? Well, so he leaves, he leaves the place God wants him to be for a few days. Read 20 years, right? If you ought to blow over. Yeah, no, actually not. God will deal with it. But here's Jacob. Watch this. Is, he loved, is Jacob loved by God? Yes. Is he called by God? Yes. Is he blessed by God? Yes. Is he chosen by God? Yes. Is he saved? Yes. Is his life a total mess? Yes. Deal with that. He's just like us. Because what did we see last week? We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're reconciled to God. We're adopted into God's family. We're filled with the life of Christ. And yet, we live in contradiction to the new identity that we say we believe we have. So, so here he is now, reaping the fruit of his own deception and lies. And because he has stolen the blessing and stolen the birthright, he's on the run. He leaves the promised land. He's going to go visit an uncle in a different land. And en route... Uh, there being no huts like in the Alps. He's camping in the desert. And God shows up, right? Now, most of the room know how this story plays out. But if you didn't know the story, and you're reading it, it's a real, I is a page turner, right? Because, because my brother wants to kill me. I'm running from my brother. But who else do I kind of instinctively think is going to be mad at me? God, right? It's like, yeah, I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen. Uh, uh, I'm anxious, I'm afraid. I'm on the run. And then, if I'm writing this as an author, I go, and then Jacob had a dream, and God showed up and said, and now, like, if I finish that sentence with conventional wisdom, this is how it looks. God showed up and said, hey, Glad you're here in the desert, uh, Jacob. It's performance review time. And I just want to remind you of your behavior over the past 15 years. And uh, remember, you're called, you're saved, you're chosen. And because of that, I mean, the things you're doing aren't really in keeping with the company values here of the people of God. I mean, we have values, right? And so lying, not a value. Cheating, not a value. Anxious, not a value. Afraid, not a value. Being a weasel, not a value. Uh, uh, therefore... Uh, you know, five offenses. I've been gracious because I didn't kick you off the team after three, but I'm going to be looking for a new guy because remember, you were called to represent my heart and just look at yourself. Yeah. Why do I expect that to be the answer? Because that's the world I live in. I, li I, mean, I live in a world of performance reviews. I live in a world where CEOs are debating whether it's a good thing for the company to always be terminating the bottom 10% of the performers. I live in a world uh, where if I fail, I'm immediately looking around to see who saw me because I'm afraid if someone knows that I failed, I'll be out. And then... Just layer on top of that what Jesus said in Matthew 7, therefore I call you to be perfect like God is perfect. And the Christian life becomes this 
perfect petri dish for self-loathing and despair. Why? Because on the one hand, I gather here on Sundays just like we do now, and I sing, and I pray, and I praise, and I study, and I serve, and I give, and on the other side here, on the other side of the ledger, whatever it is, is it a chronic addiction to porn? Is it drinking too much? Is it too much TV? Is it infidelity? Is it greed? Is it gobs of credit card debt because you're addicted to shopping? Is it an eating problem? Is it a body image issue? Is it, is it a marriage with no intimacy? Is it infidelity? I don't know. But I, I read the books here, and I know that none of us are living the life we're capable of living. None of us are living it perfectly, right? We just aren't. So we live with that tension in greater or lesser degrees, and we wonder when the axe is going to fall. And the reason we wonder that the axe is going to fall is because we don't understand that our essential identity has nothing to do with our behavior. We don't understand that. And how do I know we don't understand it? Because when God shows up here with Jacob, the answer that God gives has not a word of correction in it. So in Genesis 28, Jacob's asleep, afraid, lied, cheated, stolen. God shows up. First word out of his mouth is not its performance review time. Here's the first word out of his mouth. I'm the Lord. And that word Lord in Genesis 28, 13 means this. Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, promise-keeping God. I already promised that I would bless you. So here I am, and I'm, I'm just reiterating to you, Jacob, the man who lied, cheated, so on. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the land. Your progeny are going to be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out the east, the west, the north, the south. I'm with you. I'll keep you. I'll bring you back to the land. I will never leave you ever. I promised. Boom. I'll do it. Really? Yeah. Really. In spite of lying? Yeah. In spite of that descent into porn? Yeah. In spite of greed? Yeah. In spite of addictive behavior? Yeah. In spite of failure? Yeah. Why? Listen, it was never about you. We talk in American culture about the kids' need for self-esteem. And in various forms, we're taught to just say, I'm great. I would argue that self-esteem is the wrong approach. We don't need a better self-esteem. We need a new identity. And it's, uh, my identity is different than self-esteem because self-esteem is often performance-based. And identity is DNA-based. God's given you, 2 Corinthians 5.17, new DNA, spiritual DNA. Christ lives in you. Receive it. And then just as important as 2 Corinthians 5.17, receiving your new identity, just as important, quit judging other people for their old identity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, I've determined now that I will no longer know anyone according to the flesh. In other words, all of us present badly, but underneath bad presentation, deep within us is nothing less then the resurrected Jesus joined mystically with my human spirit so that nothing less than the life of God is waiting to burst forth. And Paul says, when I see Phil, that's what I see. Christ, waiting to burst forth. When I see Richard, that's what I see. When I see Graham, that's what I see. Christ. And Paul says, 
I encourage you to begin to see Christ in each other. <laughs> when I was at Cal Poly, coming out of depression after the death of my dad, one of my good friends there, he had the gift of encouragement. And this is what he, I'll never forget, he said this often. He said, I'm convinced that everyone knows how bad they are, how often they fail, how they fall short. I don't need to remind people how bad they are. I need to remind people that they're loved. Amen. And I'd only add, I need to remind people that they have within them nothing less than their life of the risen Jesus who's committed to their wholeness and transformation. Don't be a crap finder. It's all right. We all know it anyway, right? Be an identity affirmer instead. And this brings us to the third reality. Brokenness releases this true identity. So this Christ lives in you and needs to get out. Now we're moving towards soul, which we'll see more of next week. But brokenness releases your true identity in this sense. I don't want any of what I've said to lead to the conclusion, lead you to the conclusion that you think God is uninterested in changing your behavior. Not true. God is immensely interested in ethics. And ultimately, the point of everything is so that we in our body would represent Christ to the world. Because God's love is unconditional, God not only unconditionally accepts you, but God is unconditionally committed to your transformation. So how is Jacob transformed? Through brokenness, that's how. Because here's the story. Jacob, I mean, there's a whole chapter we have to skip this morning for time, but Jacob goes to this foreign land, gets married, gets married again, gets married again, gets married again, has 12 kids, passes on the dysfunction of his nuclear family to his new nuclear family in that he has unabashed favorites within the family. I mean, he has his four wives, and, they, and he, ran, he literally ranks his wives one to four. That's pretty dysfunctional. Four is dysfunctional to begin with. <laughs> Ranking them is a disaster, right? So, I mean, it would make a great, like you've heard of Real Housewives of New Jersey or whatever. Wouldn't you love Real Housewives of Mesopotamia <laughs> to just see Jacob... You know, one, one night, oh man, one night, he comes home and uh, a wife he doesn't care for has been, she has some fertility plants that she sold to the wife Jacob loves in exchange for the right to sleep with Jacob. So he comes home one night after a hard day in the field and the wife that he doesn't like meets him at the door and says, you gotta sleep with me tonight. I bought you from, what's her name over there? What a family, man. <laughs> so anyway, total disaster. Now, he's, you know, he's made a bunch of money there and he's heading home. And then, uh, people who are out front in his now massive party of sheep and offspring and slaves and stuff, uh, someone in the front of the party comes and says, hey, your brother Esau is coming to see you and he brought 400 men with him. Now the last time that Jacob heard Esau's voice, he knew that Esau was planning to kill him. So Jacob, being Jacob, assumes the worst, 400. So this is what he does. This is what he does. Here's a stream, right? Uh, Esau's over there at Bagley Elementary and he's coming across the street and he's gonna come in here. Here's a stream. So what does Jacob do? Puts his least favorite wife up front 
Wife number two, number three, favorite wife, last, stream, and then the bastion of courage, Jacob, at the back. You read it. It's right there in the text. And he prays. He says, oh, God, let me remind you, you know, you said you'd be faithful, blah, blah, blah. And then he, then he wrestles with God. And uh, just to cut the chase here, what happens is that in this wrestling match all night long, Jacob won't let go, won't let go. The crux for today is this. God dislocates his hip. So now, his plan is thwarted. Like, Jacob's always a man with a plan. And I think he thought, oh, well, if I hear screaming and see, you know, dust, I can always, what, do a Monty Python and run away, right? I can always run away. Well, now I can't run away. So now in his, he's broken. Watch this. I can't depend on myself anymore. I can't. I don't have any resources. Remember last week, Major Thomas, my mentor, writing about his prayer? God, I quit. I've tried to be a missionary. I've tried to be devoted. I've tried to be holy. I've tried to, I've tried to serve you. I've tried and tried, tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed. I'm done. Finally, you're done. Now that you're broken, I'll be in you where you could never be on your own. So now that Jacob is broken, what does he do? Well, I guess there's nothing left to do but depend on God. So he goes to the front of the line and meets Esau. And there's this incredible reconciliation that happens. As long as Jacob is strong, he's a man with a plan. But watch this. What did Paul say later on, 2 Corinthians chapter 12? I had this thorn in the flesh, this, this affliction, and it broke me. And I prayed that God would take it away. And then God said, I'm going to give you something better than the removal of your affliction. I'm going to give you my strength made perfect in your what? Weakness. And then what does Paul say? I'm going to glory in my weakness because when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I'm weak, I'm no longer depending on me. And now that I'm no longer depending on me, I discover, whoa, my cup is full. I will never even know this as long as I'm continuing to clean the outside of the cup, thinking that a cleaner cup will somehow make me worthy of being filled with the life of God. He's already there. It becomes, you know, our calling to simply receive it. And so if you're feeling weak this morning, broken this morning, unworthy this morning, as if you failed this morning, good. <laughs> it's right there that you can say, this is what Paul said in, in uh, Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And as soon as he said who, he turned the corner. Because as soon as he said who, he stopped looking inwardly and began to look outside. I need, I need a source beyond myself to live the life for which I'm created. That source is available. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, this is, I mean, the power, this is the power of anointing with oil, actually. And I kind of wish we could do that this morning, but it's just logistically not possible. Unless I just took some olive oil and just dumped it all over the sanctuary. <laughs> But how powerful is it when, when uh, Samuel anoints David as king in 1 Samuel 17? 
Sarah's looking for the right guy. Who is it? This one, this one, it's a strong one, the old one, the rich one. No, 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 no. The youngest, the shepherd. And then what does God say? God looks on the outer man. Excuse me, we look on the outer man. God doesn't. God's interested in what's in here. And and the, the best news of the planet is what's in here is already in there for you. Everyone in the room. Christ in you, if you've said yes. All you gotta do is say yes. So I wish I could just touch your head with oil and say this this morning, completing Christ, completing Christ, completing Christ, and then have you say thank you. Because we spend the next four weeks learning how to live into that completion. But it starts with believing that we have a new identity. Amen? I mean, amen? Amen. Completing Christ. Father, thank you. Uh, We would like to live into this now. And the first step is simply believing it. So would you take us there by the power of your spirit? We know our brokenness. In our brokenness, may we depend on your completion and your wholeness and your strength to be in and through us what we could never be on our own as we receive your anointing. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.